Good morning, everybody. Welcome to you. My name is Tim Harris. I am pastor of Woodburn Baptist Church. Delighted to welcome you. Did y'all see the pictures from the Easter egg hunt yesterday? Pretty fantastic. Yeah, about uh, over 50 volunteers from Woodburn helping to make that happen. So God bless those of you who worked at it. Is it just me or are Easter egg hunts getting easier? At a football field, they're just laying the eggs out now for kids. Uh, not a lot of challenge in that. Uh, Papaw, I mean, I can tell you about the day when we really, we had to hunt our Easter eggs. And that was the point. I mean, our parents wanted us gone for a long time. You know, so they hid eggs, so you'd be still looking at Halloween for Easter eggs. Man, there wasn't none of that picking them up off the ground in, in plain sight. But anyway, um, it's a new generation, and I'm good with it, y'all. Y'all do anything y'all want with your Easter eggs. Uh, I'm excited. Thank you all for being here today. Open your Bibles to John 19. John chapter 19. I've been in a message series entitled Altars for several weeks, and I want to wrap that up next week. Uh, the next two weeks being very, very important. Uh, in, uh, in, in an important way, I want you to understand everything I've been saying about altars comes to this sermon and then next Sunday as well. Uh, altars. I've defined an altar in a very particular way. I've said an altar is a place where sacrifices are made. And I pointed out to you that this whole idea of building, y'all know I'm going to fall off these steps by the end of this sermon, right? Y'all, y'all, are y'all ready for it? Because there's usually another uh, 18 inches of stage here, and uh, I usually like hang half my shoe off of that. So uh, if I die, uh, I die doing what I love. That's what y'all can all, all say. Um, Altar's a place where sacrifices are made. And I've been saying, uh, pointing out to you the way that the human family, human civilizations uh, from ancient times have, have built altars. They've made these sacrifices. Maybe it's a, a stone table or a hearth where a burnt offering is made. Of course, the Old Testament is filled with the sacrificial system of the ancient people of God, but it's beyond that. It, it is throughout human history in every place you have found civilization, there's some sort of worship, and that worship always has something to do with sacrifice. I don't care what group you find. The Aztecs were throwing people into volcanoes, uh, you know, Gilligan's Island, the chief Kiliwani came, remember that, and was going to throw the white goddess into the volcano. Any Gilligan's Island people out here? Yeah, that's, yeah. Gilligan dressed up in the evening gown. Uh, he was, yeah, all of that. Um, that's not in the Bible, by the way, but it's Gilligan. There's something about human beings. Now, we know how it all started as believers. Those of us who know the scriptures, we know how it began in fellowship with God in the garden. But then sin was introduced and that relationship was broken. And after that, it was no longer the case where the human family simply walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day. That relationship was severed by sin. So after that, we were separated from God by our sin. And generation by generation, it seems like that distance grew greater and greater and greater. Humans made in the image of God still had some recollection, some knowledge of a God to whom they were related, but they no longer knew his name. They no longer knew what he required. All they knew was if there's a God there, our relationship must be broken. So uh, throughout human history, in all places, they built altars and they made sacrifices. There's a sense that this God is angry and needs to be somehow his favor earned back with, with the blood or the death of something, a, a gift of something. 
So in all places, in all ways, there's just this effort to, to uh, recover this broken relationship. But what all of these altars and sacrifices only reveal is that this relationship is more broken than we knew. And, and the price, the sacrifice was going to be greater than we could even imagine. Yeah, that's why I've been saying this, that, that the offering of salvation doesn't come from our side of the altar. If we learn anything with uh, centuries and centuries and centuries of slaughtering animals on altars, we learn that there's not enough animals and no sacrifice is ever enough. We've never shed the blood of a single animal that atoned for the sins of the world. Do you understand? The offering of salvation doesn't come from us. It doesn't come from our side of the altar. So that brings us to the ultimate altar, the ultimate sacrifice. And that's where we are today. We're talking about the cross of Jesus. It is an altar because it's a place where a sacrifice is made. And since it is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, since it is the ultimate sacrifice, it's the final altar. Understand? We're not still making sacrifices because of what Jesus has done on the cross. It's there in John chapter 19 is where we'll be. John chapter 19, going to start in verse 28, just going to drop in right at the middle of the story with Jesus on the cross. John chapter 19, verse 28. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished, and to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch, and held it up to his lips. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and released his spirit. It was the day of preparation, and the Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies hanging there the next day, which was the Sabbath. Let me stop right there. Uh, if it's a day of preparation, that just means it's, it's Friday. Every Friday... Uh, in, in the Jewish world, every Friday is the day of preparation. It's the day before Sabbath. And the point is, on Sabbath, you don't want anything to uh, be ceremonially unclean. You don't want dead bodies hanging around on the Sabbath. So the Jews make a very special request of the Roman leaders, and that is that the bodies not be left hanging on the cross for the Sabbath. And not just this, this particular Sabbath, which happens every week, it falls on a festival that only comes once a year, and it is the Feast of Passover. Passover is the once-a-year celebration when the people of God remember their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. You remember how uh, on that last night in Egypt, the, the, the angel of death passed over. Do you remember that? And, and those who would take the blood of an animal and put the blood over their doors, they would spread the blood with the branch of hyssop which is one of the tales of, of the cross, would spread the blood with, with hyssop, and, and then the, the, the death would pass over their house. It was that story that they remember, and it's that sacrifice of the lamb uh, that is important here. So let me back up. It was a day of preparation, and the Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies hanging there the next day, which was the Sabbath, and a very special Sabbath because it was Passover. So they asked Pilate to hasten their deaths by ordering that their legs be broken, then their bodies could be taken down. Let me stop again. Uh, I'm not going to go into the gory details of crucifixion, but just understand the crucifixion was the Roman Empire's perfected way of executing criminals. It was a public way to die. It was torture, um, and it was absolutely the Roman way of putting people to death. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people were crucified in Rome. The fact that Jesus died on a cross is not what makes him unique. 
Lots of people died on crosses. On this particular day, there are two other guys with Jesus. So understand, the death on the cross is not the unique part of Jesus' death. Crucifixion itself was torture. Uh, Of course, you would be literally hanging on a cross. It was never as beautiful as the Christian artists make it look. It's brutal. It's torture. It's bloody. Uh, You're hanging on a cross, and so the effect of that is is literally your arms just continue to stretch, and all the fluid from your arms and your upper body, it pulls in the chest, and it paralyzes the diaphragm. The diaphragm is this muscle that enables you to breathe. It pushes up and and helps you exhale. It, It relaxes and lets your lungs inhale. When you stay in this position, hanging by your arms, that's the problem. Your lungs begin to fill the fluid, and the diaphragm is incapable of contracting or relaxing. So therefore, respiration, it becomes very difficult to breathe. On the cross, you don't bleed to death, you suffocate. Are y'all with me? Do you understand what I'm saying? You suffocate. It becomes impossible to breathe. So the Romans, in order to prolong death, again, it's torture. They want people to walk by and see these people dying, and they want, to, they, they want the death to be a deterrent to future crime. So therefore, I don't want ever to have, have to happen to me what, what's happened to that guy. So crucifixion is intentionally a slow death and a horrible death, and it's always public, always in public. So uh, the idea is as they suffocate, they would nail the feet on the cross as well. So then you would push up with your feet in order to take the pressure off your lungs so that you could breathe and then drop back. Understand? It's, it's a constant rocking horse motion of pushing up and dropping back, pushing up. And that lasts as long as a man can make it last. And honestly, people often died on crosses for days. Days of rocking back and forth. Now, this is why this detail in the story matters. The Jews don't want the bodies on the crosses for their Sabbath and for their Passover. So the special request is, will you break their legs? Now, this is brutal as well, but it's also merciful. Because if you come by with a mallet and shatter their legs, then the men are incapable of pushing up, and then they'll suffocate and die quickly. You see that? So that is why in this particular moment... The, the, the request is, can you break their legs? All right? So back to verse 32. The soldiers came and broke the legs of the two men crucified with Jesus, but when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs. One of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water flowed out. This report is from an eyewitness giving an accurate account. He speaks the truth so that you also may continue to believe. These things happen in fulfillment of the scriptures that say not one of his bones will be broken. That's an Old Testament passage referring to the Passover lamb. It was important in making a sacrifice at Passover that the lamb be offered whole and not have any of its legs broken. So in this case, Jesus is that lamb of God, that Passover lamb, and his legs aren't broken. And then verse 37, they will look on the one they have pierced. That's One of the places in the Gospels where the death of Jesus is described, it's awful, uh, but it's also important for us. Important for what Jesus says in verse 30. He says, and if you know the story at all, you know he says this. He says, it is finished. It it is finished. We don't really know if those were exactly his last words. Uh, Jesus 
uh, said a number of things on the cross, uh, utterances that are recorded throughout the Gospels. But in the Gospel of John, John wants you to make sure that, that Jesus, one of the last things he says is, is it is finished. I don't know exactly how he says it. Some of you probably imagine that it's more like a death, you know, the final last words, his lungs are filling up with fluid, and it's like a death rattle. Uh, it is finished, which is kind of like saying, I'm done. Uh, my life is finished. I am finished. But, but that's not what happens. In, in all the accounts of Jesus on the cross, his last words are not death rattles. He shouts. So what he manages to say, he manages to say with strength. So, so this is not like whispered suffering, last words, you know, I'm dead. That's not it at all. It is finished, Jesus says, and it's something of a triumphant declaration. So the question becomes, what is finished? I don't think it's his life. I don't think he's saying, I'm finished. I don't think even his suffering on the cross is finished, although it is. The scripture makes it very clear. There's no mystery. We know what's finished. What does the gospel of John say in verse 28? What's finished? Y'all mad at me? Nobody's cooperating with me. Yeah, his mission, absolutely. Jesus knew that his mission was finished. So that's the point. That's what's finished. Jesus' mission is finished. So when Jesus says it is finished, he's talking about his mission. His life on earth, his ministry is going to be ended, but he's talking about his mission. I have finished what I came to do. My life's purpose, my life's mission is complete. It is finished. He's talking about his mission. So the question becomes, what was his mission? What did Jesus come to do? In several places in the book of John, Jesus will say things like, I have completed everything the Father sent me to do, which is amazing. Because some of you, not in a single day of your life have you finished everything you were supposed to do. And not on, not on a single day. And then to imagine that Jesus was Jesus, you know? And Jesus says, I've done everything I came to do. Because you stop and realize all the things he never did. You know, like he could have started a hospital. That would have been fantastic. Or maybe you know, start a college of, of education. I mean, there are a million things that Jesus could have done. He could have started a feeding program and eradicated world hunger. I mean, Jesus could have done all of these things. But Jesus had a mission. And he knew very clearly what his mission was. And he accomplished everything that he was sent to do. What was his mission? Now, the scripture says it again in several places, but I would just take you back to Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, because this is the very beginning of his earthly life. Matthew chapter 1, uh, there is an angel talking to someone. Who's the angel talking to? Yeah, Joseph. Uh, you said Mary, some of you. Uh, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary in the book of Luke, in the gospel of Luke. Luke tells Mary's story. Matthew tells Joseph's story. So remember, Joseph was betrothed, engaged to a young girl named Mary, and they had never, ever had sex together. But Joseph still finds out that Moses is going to have a... Moses. That (laughs) Mary... Mary is going to have a baby. And so Joseph's plan is to divorce her, to put her away quietly without bringing embarrassment upon her or shame upon himself. But the angel appears to Joseph and says, fear not. Do not hesitate to make, take Mary home to be your wife because the child that is in her is of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Mary's a virgin. The baby's of the Holy Spirit. And then the angel gives Joseph these instructions. You shall call his name Jesus 
Jesus is the Greek, Latin way that we say it. It's actually a Hebrew name, uh, Yeshua. Uh, Joshua is the same Hebrew name. So Jesus and Joshua are actually the same name. Yeshua is, is Hebrew, and it has a very particular Hebrew meaning. What does the name Jesus, the name Yeshua, mean? Yeah, it means God saves. Interesting. So Jesus' name means God saves. So the angel says, call him Jesus, call him God saves, for he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus has one mission, one purpose, lots and lots of things he could do and lots of things that he did along the way. But this was the mission that he came to fulfill. And this is what Jesus has done. He has saved his people from their sins. Now, it is a specific mission, and it is a a specific uh, threat. There's a specific problem here, and that problem is sin. There are probably lots and lots of problems we all have, but from a spiritual perspective, the only problem that matters is the fact that we are sinners. We are all sinners. This is what puts us in need of salvation. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner too. Everyone sins. Everyone, every son and daughter of Adam and Eve, every member of the human race, we all sin. Now, when I'm sharing the gospel with children, understand, this is the hardest part for most children to grasp, the idea that they personally sin. Now, they all do. All of us as parents can say, when a child is born, they know how to sin. Instantly, it comes naturally. They will lie. All children are born liars. You'll say, who pooped in that diaper? And they'll say, not me. I mean, you know, it's, you know, it's just interesting how naturally a child, and every one of us are that way. We're just bent in that way. We, we naturally move in that direction. We are sinners. Sinners. What is sin? Again, children will say it's doing bad things, and and your sinfulness is expressed in some of the things that you do, no question. You show that you're a sinner by the fact that you sin every day. I I do too. I, I do too. But sin is deeper than that. It's a more profound problem than that, and and you need to understand that. If you think that sin is just doing bad things, then your next thought is, well, then I'll just do some good things. And then maybe I can can weigh that out. I'll I'll do good things and balance out the bad things I do. And and then maybe if I break even, then in the end, then God will let me into heaven. And you need to understand, none of this works that way. You're not going to be able to do enough good to outweigh the bad because your sin debt is already too great. You're born with this incredible, incredible sin nature. You're a sinner. In the Bible, it talks about it in several ways. It talks about it as a falling short. Book of Romans says, for everyone sins and falls short of God's standard, of the glory of God. So God's standard is is God. I mean, he is holy. He is perfect. And none of us is perfect, understand? So we all fall short. It's like the idea of of a target that's just too far away. So no matter how hard you, you reach toward it, you can never reach it. You always fall short. You probably understand this in some ways because you have often imagined being a better person. You tell yourself, you know, that, you know, okay, I'm always late to work. I tell you, this will be the last day I'm late to work, and then there's tomorrow. I mean, you know, you, you never seem to learn anything. You never seem to get better. I mean, some of you have been quitting smoking for years. 
I mean, years. You got like patches. You forget to, I mean, like patches everywhere. You know, you'd be lighting the patches too. I mean, you just aren't good at this. It's April. Some of you made New Year's resolutions in January. You know, you were going to give up sweets, you know, and you were going to lose whatever weight, and it's April, and how's that going? You know, you found the peeps in Target's clearance aisle, didn't you? So now you're eating just straight sugar, you know, shoveling. I mean, your goals from January are so forgotten. It's, it's human nature. We are not capable of saving ourselves. We're not capable of changing ourselves. If you could change, you would have changed a long time ago. This problem is deeper than you possibly can imagine. Your sin is serious, not just because of the sins that you commit, and, and, and we all do sinful things, some of us very, very evil things. But See, that's the thing. I can talk about my sin in such a way where it just sounds it's just kind of, kind of bad, but, but some of you sin worse. You know, I've never been in jail, you know, for example. I've never killed anybody. You know, so you can always say, I've never built a meth lab. You, know, you can always sort of find a way where you can compare your sin to other people's sins and then feel pretty good about yourself. But still, you're missing the point. It's not comparing yourself to other people. You're not trying to measure up to other people. You're falling short of God's standard. And we're talking about a holy God. Now, again, the, the seriousness of sin has more to do with the God against whom we sin. It's not so much that you get caught or you do little nasty, naughty things. No, no. It's the fact that the sin that you commit is against a God who is holy, a God who is great. It's just impossible to describe his greatness. This past week, we saw for the very first time, we being us, we saw, I mean, human beings saw for the first time in history, in the history of ever, we saw the picture of a black hole. Some of you are thinking, big deal, a picture of a black hole. It's a black hole. Yeah. And it is. It was awesome. Did I see it? It's a black hole. Did I hear correctly? The black hole that we're looking at is the size of the orbit of Pluto. It's vast. Uh, incomprehensibly vast. And here's the thing. God just, you know, speaks that kind of thing into existence. God knows black holes inside and out. You know, he knows what's on the other side. He knows all about, you know, uh, the, the way gravity collapses and light can't escape. I mean, you understand these are mysteries to us, but God made all of this. Uh, a black hole, you know, within, that's the size of the orbit of Pluto. Still, God just sort of marked it off, you know, with his little finger when he was laying out the heavens and the earth. I mean, he's God. He's so great. And this is the God against whom you sin. I mean, he doesn't have to put up with you at all. You don't seem to understand. You are so, so insignificant, and he is so great. The word we use is holy. The word holy, honestly, in, in all the world, it, it is only properly used in reference to God. It's the God, it's the word that describes his essence, his, his, his moral purity, his, his beauty, but it's, it's always more holy. It's just the word that we have that only applies to God. He's a holy God. Book of Hebrews says our God is a consuming fire. He is this blazing furnace of holiness, of beauty, of goodness, of majesty. I mean, this is a great God, and you are a great sinner. So the question becomes, you know, why in the world, I mean, why in the world doesn't God just forgive sin? 
Just forgive it. I mean, he's a great God. Yeah, of course. So if he's all that great, just forgive sin. I mean, you know, your grandma does it. I mean, your grandma, you know, doesn't even remember your name, so she doesn't remember what you did on prom night, you know? So why can't God sort of just do that? You know, understand, sin does have its penalty, and the wages of sin is death. That's what the Bible says. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. I mean, this is the point. The outcome is, is death, and it's not just physical death. Death is more complex than you've ever really fathomed. It's not just that death is what happens when your heart stops and your kidneys shut down. You know? Because you are not just a physical body. You're also a spiritual being. And the death that sin brings, the death starts long before your heart stops beating and your kidneys shut down. What I'm saying is when, when sin entered the world, when sin entered your life, understand part of you died. It's that part of you that relates to God, that part of you that could know him, that part of you that could recognize him. There's a part of you already dead, and, and this is what is so horribly important for you to understand. There's a part of you already dead, and the rest of you is following pretty closely. The wages of sin is death, and sin will have its penalty. It will have its penalty. There's no escaping this. Sin is the problem. And sin is what separates us from this holy God. Understand, God cannot be in the presence of sin. Sin cannot be in the presence of his holiness. It's just that simple. So again, people say, well, why can't God just forgive sin? It's like that mama in Target with all the kids in the shopping cart. And she's always saying, sit down, sit down. You better sit down. Okay, I'm going to count to three. I'm going to count to three now. One, two. I'm telling you to sit down. You know, it's like that mama, number one, don't ever get to three because she don't have a plan. (laughs) Nothing happens at three. The kid knows that. Nobody's ever actually been scared of counting to three. There's no change and there's no fear in that. Mama is just, you know, you know and, and some of you just are sort of hoping God's going to turn out like that. You know, change your ways, I'm going to count to three. You're thinking God's like this toothless tiger that's all barking, no bite. You, you understand? No, this is a holy God, and you're not going to escape the justice. Sin will have its penalty. You got any germaphobes in the house? Germaphobes, go ahead, raise your hand. It's okay, we're not going to come touch you. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm not really germaphobic at all. I'm just, I don't think a whole lot about it, except in public restrooms. And I can't say a lot for ladies' rooms. I'm mainly talking men's rooms. I mean, men are pigs, y'all. I mean, we just are. I mean, men in this church, like, since I'm pastor, I have certain freedoms I don't have. And like, when nobody's here during the week, sometimes, you know, I'll look in a ladies' room. Have y'all ever looked in a ladies' room here? It is nice. <laughs> like, they have... Like multiple kinds, they got mood lighting in there. Like they can have like dim lights or like bright lights, you know. For the men all day long, it's like a gas station in, in, in there. I mean, women have, y'all got potpourri, you know, and, and like nice soap. Um, anyway, I, I, you know, I'm not, not bitter. <laughs> anyway, it's public restrooms that kind of creep me out. I, as much as possible, I just like to go at home, you, you know, personally. But I was coming back from a, a funeral in Owensboro. And you know that parkway is really long. And like there's a certain 
point when you're leaving Owensboro that if you got to go or think you may need to go, you probably need to go because it's going to be a long stretch to Morgantown. You know what I'm talking about? So you got to do your stuff, you know, do your business before you leave, you know, civilization in Davis County. So anyway, I was with Casey. I was kind of thinking, can I make it? I can probably make it, but I'm 54. You know, some things aren't as predictable. So, so I'm going to go. I said, Casey, I'm going to pull over here. It's, it's the last stop. Uh, so I pulled off. It's like a gas station. And I walked in and, uh, you know, it's like I could see like a moist film of hepatitis on everything, <laughs> like every surface, every part of that bathroom. So, but, but honestly, I'm good. I'm really good, you all. I have like the spidey ability. I can do everything I need to do in a public restroom and never touch anything. Y'all with me? I I use my foot. Like, so this was my first key that something's off in this bathroom. In the men's room, the the seat was down. That's weird. We've never put a seat down in our lives. So anyway, being a gentleman, I was going to raise the seat, but I'm not, I'm not going to touch that. I wouldn't touch that seat for nothing, you know? So I reached down. I can do this. I'm awesome. I I can do it with my toe. Can y'all do this? How many of you do this? How many of you, seriously, you use your foot. There you go. Yeah, so I'm using my foot. I'm gonna raise it. I mean, I can actually flush, you know, same way. You know, I don't touch. I mean, I ain't touching that toilet. You, you people can if you want. I'm not touching that, that thing. So anyway, I'm in the bathroom, wherever, outside of Owensboro, uh, hepatitis everywhere. So I'm lifting it with my toe. But what happens is the commode seat isn't actually screwed down. So what happens is kind of like a ring toss, like the whole... I'm, I'm serious, y'all. Like, the commode seat came off, and it's like hanging on my foot. So now it's like, what am I going to, what am I going to, you know? So, because I'm not touching nothing. I'm not going to touch anything. So I start trying to, like, lay it back on the, the commode, you know, and I still really got to go. What did I do? What did I end up doing? I touched everything. I had to touch that whole place. Yeah. There was not enough hand gel in the world. I got back in the car. It's just like, you know. Yeah. So we're thinking that maybe God's just a little kind of xenophobic. Maybe it just bothers him a little, you know, but, but certainly he could learn to tolerate it. You know, it's kind of like coming in and like just getting a little bit of dirt on God's rug. But surely, you know, maybe when we're gone, he can sweep. Maybe he can wash his hands, you know, if he has a little bit of trouble. But, but you're missing the point. Sin in the presence of a holy God, it, it doesn't work like that. It's not just like a, a little bit of, 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 of lack of cleanliness, Hebrews says, our God is a consuming fire. And you must understand, sin just simply cannot exist in the presence of that holy fire. So think of your sin, think of yourself as like paper. If there's a fire and you have paper that comes near the fire, what happens? It doesn't matter if it's a scrap piece of paper or the Declaration of Independence. I mean, it doesn't matter. If it's paper, when it gets close to the fire, what will happen? It'll be reduced, it'll be destroyed, it'll simply be dissolved because paper cannot, it simply cannot exist in the presence of fire. The fire will destroy it. 
And, and this is what you have to understand. It's not just that, you know, this is personal. God's been keeping up with you and he's going to fry you one day. No, you've just got to understand because of the very nature of sin and the nature of holiness, sin simply cannot be in God's presence. And that's why throughout scripture, if anybody sees God, the expectation is they're just going to die. We're sinners. We will be destroyed in his presence. We cannot, we just simply cannot stand in the blazing furnace of his holiness. Are y'all with me? Do you understand? So here's the dilemma. Our sin will separate us from God, not just in this life, but in the life to come. I mean, we are never going to make our way back to him. Sin will not allow it. And here's the thing. It's the second point. God loves us. This is the dilemma. God still loves us. Even though you sin, God loves you. And it's personal. He knows you by name. All of this is about you. God, God loves you. God loves us. And God was unwilling to let any of us live or die apart from him. It just simply could not allow that. Even though sin would separate us, understand, and the wages of sin is death, God is not going to allow that. God wanted to restore the relationship, but there's no way that that relationship could be restored. Sin had completely broken it. And there's nothing we could offer, no sacrifice that we could offer because the wages of sin is death. That means the only death that's coming that's gonna pay the price will be yours. The soul that sins, it shall die. Do you understand? This is the amazing thing. It's, it's actually the, the big story of the whole Bible. It's a story of God's uh, great mission to uh, save the world from its sin. Obviously, there's got to be a death. Something has to pay this penalty. There's got to be death. But God loves us and doesn't want any of us to pay that price. So what does God do? He comes down. He comes down. I know that it's hard for us to understand. You know, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the three persons, but it's still one God. So when you see Jesus, you're, you're seeing God. Understand that. Jesus' actions are God's actions. So God becomes flesh. In, in that sense, he's no longer this blazing furnace of holiness that cannot be gazed upon. Do you understand? He took on flesh. He, he was like us. You could touch his face. You could touch his hands, his side. You could see him, touch him, talk to him. And, and he lived a completely sinless life. I mean, we all sin. He never did now, he was tempted. He could have sinned. I mean, he would have been capable of sinning in all the ways that we're capable of sinning, but he never sinned, not one time. He never disobeyed his parents. He never told a lie. He never put his sister in the clothes dryer and pushed on. You know, he never did anything like that. He never broke a law. He never, you know, broke the speed limit, never left his car in a no parking zone for more than two hours. Understand, he never did any of that. Can you even imagine a life of utter moral perfection? He never sinned. So when Jesus reaches that point of death on the cross, you understand, it's not the fact that he dies on the cross that's unique. Lots and lots of people died on the cross. What is unique is that this man who died named Jesus, he never sinned. 
He had never sinned. So his death, understand, he had no, no sins to pay for. That makes him capable of paying for the sins of the whole world. That's why when John the baptizer saw Jesus walking down, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world who takes away the sin of the world. He had no sin of his own. He who knew no sin became sin itself, that we might become the righteousness of God. That's what the scriptures say. He took our sin upon himself. He died our death so that we could live his life. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, it's the most amazing thing. God himself pays the full penalty for the sin of the world. God himself does that. So that's why we say that Jesus died for you. It's, it's that personal He died for you. Your sins laid upon his back. His blood shed. He died that you might live. This is your offer of salvation. So it's the final altar. It's the ultimate sacrifice. God himself, the sacrifice. It's unthinkable, impossible. Unbelievable. It's the gospel. God himself places himself on the altar. He sheds his blood. He dies in our place. So there's no more sacrifice to make. You get that? That's why we're not offering anything today. We don't have to. Jesus did that. He paid the full penalty. There's nothing left for you to do. So salvation isn't a matter of like being a good person. So you're a good person trying to balance out the bad things. Haven't we already covered that today? That's not how it works. Jesus did everything necessary for you. It's it's a gift. It now has nothing at all to do with the life you live. You understand that? Your salvation is not contingent upon your ability to be a good person. Jesus did all of that for you paid the full penalty for you. There really is no sacrifice left for you to make at all. The only thing left for you is to uh, accept it or reject it. Can Can I talk a moment to those of you who would reject it? I don't even know what to say. Why would you say no? You say, Brother Tim, I've got a lot of questions left over. Yeah, you know, I do too. I mean, it's, it's, you know, God's word is, is thick and dense and big, and there's just a lot of stuff in the Bible I don't even know yet. You know, I haven't learned yet. There are questions I can't answer, and and, and none of that has to do with this. You understand? I mean, I don't have to get those questions answered in order to have my sins forgiven. Jesus did that for me. You say, well, Pastor Tim, I'm a little worried about my sexuality. I'm thinking I might be gay, and, you know, and I'm telling you, I don't, that doesn't matter. It's not just like gospel for straight people. Jesus died for gay people, too. This is beside the point. And we're not saying that you have to like become straight and then you can come to Jesus. If you could make yourself straight, you wouldn't need Jesus in the first place. You understand? You just need Jesus. And, and this is the first thing, and it's the only thing, is Jesus. It, whatever is left to, to, to be you know, fixed in your life, let Jesus fix later. I mean, that's not a part of your salvation here. You just say, you just got to want Jesus. 
Well, Pastor Tim, I, I, I love science, and uh, I'm not really sure about creation and evolution. I don't care about creation and evolution. It's, it's beside the point. I've got opinions. I actually love science a lot. I mean, I love the Bible, too. I mean, but, but that's not what we're talking about. You don't have to get science and creation right in order to come to Jesus. All of that is beside the point. You understand? That's an excuse you're making. You just come to him just like you are. I mean, you just come. You come with your questions. You come with the sexual mess of your life. You just come with your hang-ups and your hurts. You just come to him. Why would you not come to him? I mean, he's the answer to everything. He's the answer to everything. And, and this life that you're trying to live and you continue to fall in the same traps and continue to struggle saying it's never going to be right for you until you get this right. I mean, you just, you have to come to Jesus. You have to let him save you. I still just don't understand why you would say no. Because if you say no to him, then your sin, it still hangs over your head. I mean, like an ax. I mean, just, I mean, you are condemned. I mean, you may live a pretty good life in this life, but inside, you're a dead man. I mean, you're already a dead man inside. And, and, and when this body, when this life on earth is over, you're going to open your eyes on eternity. And, and the sad thing is you're still going to be dead and apart from Christ. I just don't understand why you would say no. Because he did it all for you. All you have to do is believe Receive it like a gift. Just take it, yes. I mean, most of us who come to Jesus, we, we start with a prayer. There's no magic prayer. Like, like I give you an incantation, you say these words and spend five times and boom, you know, no. Um, it's, it's just talking to Jesus and that's prayer. So you just sort of, you know, God, I know I'm a sinner. And I believe that you died for me and I believe that you rose from the dead and I want you to forgive me. I'm begging you to forgive me my sins. Um, save me and I'll, I'll give you my life. And something like that would, would work. Why would you not? Pray with me. Oh, Lord Jesus, we are sinners. God, our lives are so messed up. We have tried uh, to be cool and to look good and to fool the world, but Lord, uh, you know our hearts and you know how broken, uh, you know how ugly we are on the inside, you know how uh, nasty our thoughts are, Lord, you just know us. Lord, that sin, it separates us from you for the longest time, Lord. We don't even understand what the problem is, Lord, but you've always known that the problem was our sin, and you've also always known that we were powerless to do anything about it. Jesus, thank you for doing what we could never do. Thank you for loving us, even though we were so unlovable, so far from you. Thank you for making uh, that, that distance for bridging that, that, that separation that we might come to you and know life. 
God, there are men and women and young people in this house today who just sit here Sunday after Sunday and listen, and they never take a step toward you. God, would you, would you just give them grace today and strength and courage to uh, just take that one step closer to you, Lord, today? Help them to say yes. Help them just to want you and to believe and to accept your offer, Lord God. I don't know why any of us would say no. Give us grace, Lord, to say yes every day of our lives, to say yes to you. Whatever you have for you, whatever you ask for us, whatever you want to give to us, Lord, yes. Yes, Lord, we want you and everything you offer us. We thank you for these things in the name of Jesus who died for us. Amen.